This is The Memo by Howard Marks. Today, we're featuring another episode of The Rewind, in which Howard looks back on some of his memos over the years, discusses their origins, and considers their relevance to today's financial environment. In this episode, Howard reflects on It's All a Big Mistake, which was originally published on June 20th, 2012, in conversation with Bob O'Leary, who is Global Co-Portfolio Manager and Head of North America for Oak Tree's Global Opportunities Strategy. Howard and Bob were interviewed by Anna Shemansky, Oak Tree's senior financial writer. Here's the conversation. To start with, Howard, my first question will be for you. If you could just tell me when the memo was written and if there's anything notable about its origins. This memo was written in June of 2012. It really was spurred by something Bob said at one of our investor conferences. Very often, the memos in general are triggered by some random event, something I hear, something somebody says, something that occurs in the environment that clarifies something I have always thought. Oh, maybe the word is catalyze. I hesitate to use the word epiphany, but that sometimes is what it is. And what Bob said at this conference really spurred me to write these nine pages. And I recall that conference as well, Howard. And I I think as I was coming off the stage after my remarks, you motioned me over And I thought I was in trouble because I'd said something wrong, but you asked me what I'd said. And then uh, lo and behold, a week or two later, there it was in a memo. So fun recollection to go back through the memo again. Bob doesn't get into trouble that often, (laughs) but uh, this time his uh, contribution was certainly positive. Great. Well, I guess then that leads to the next question. What was it that Bob said that led to this epiphany? Well, let me quote to you. He said, if I can find it, Our business is often an examination of flawed underwriting assumptions, which is a polite way to say the other person screwed up. (laughs) And it struck me that certainly the seller and the buyer have different beliefs and different expectations. And events will prove one of them wrong. Either the buyer made a mistake by buying and the asset declines or produces a disappointing return, or the seller made a mistake and the buyer goes on to make a lot of money. You can't have both and you can't have neither. One of them, if one achieves a good success through his or her actions, the other one made a mistake. It's as simple as that. I mean, the efficient market hypothesis, everything's priced fairly to return a fair risk-adjusted return. The active manager's goal is to find the exceptions, the times when assets offer superior risk-adjusted returns. In other words, when you can buy things for less than they're worth. Makes perfect sense. I've dedicated my career, and Bob has dedicated his career to buying assets for less than they're worth. A laudable, understandable goal. The challenge is that it requires the cooperation of someone who's willing to sell assets for less than they're worth. And you wouldn't think many people volunteer to play that role, but apparently some do. Yeah, and Bob, if you could speak a little bit more about why that quote is so relevant for specifically distressed investing. Yeah, so distressed investing comes with two inbuilt advantages, if you will, more than two, but at least two. One is the fact that all these instruments that we look at once upon a time were issued to an investor who had a set of assumptions about that instrument and believe that those would lead to the adequate performance and ultimately a good return. One or more of those assumptions along the way went wrong if that instrument ended up distressed and in an area where we operate in our opportunities funds. The advantage that we have, or one of the advantages, is that we're able to examine that assumption, as we mentioned back at the conference, and determine whether it's fatal to the investment case or adequately priced in and make our decision then. It's almost as if you're playing a hand of poker and the dealer tells you ahead of getting all the cards what your worst card's going to be, and you get to decide whether you're going to still bet. The other advantage, of course, is that we get to go in at a valuation that's far superior in most cases than the original investor did. So we start with a leg up, if you will, and then get to make our assessments. The one thing I'd like to add to that is that the Biggest amounts of money are lost by investors when the things they're in love with, it turned out they loved them too much and overstated the merit. And that's 
almost impossible in the world of distressed debt. There's no such thing as assets that investors love in the distressed debt arena. By the time they get to the distressed debt arena, investors are at worst neutral on them, but usually have lost all faith and, if anything, underrate them. The other thing that I found very interesting earlier in my career is that all these instruments we look at, they're all issued under a prospectus. There's a risk factor section to that prospectus. You can go back and read the whole thing. But when something falls into distress, the factor that caused it to go there is often poorly described or not described at all in the risk factor section. In the latter case, where it's not described at all, I mean, you just go back to March of 2020 and read all the prospectuses that had been issued prior to that date for the cruise ship industry and wonder how many of them said, you know, anything about a global pandemic. So not only are we not good at describing what ultimately may befall a security or an instrument, sometimes we don't contemplate it at all. But again, in our business, we do get the advantage of seeing that in retrospect and deciding was a global pandemic fatal to the operation of cruise ships. And of course, it was not. Right. And one of the interesting quotes in this memo, Howard said that distressed debts investing's great advantages is that it embodies an anti-error business model. Bob, I was wondering if you could speak about that. Yeah. So there's a lot of great things in this memo. And one of them is that I think Howard correctly points out that we all make mistakes. The point of this all, though, and this goes back to risk control and and what Howard described at the founding of Oak Tree is the primacy of risk control, which is we want to minimize those mistakes. And when they do occur, we want to make the best of it. We want to have an investment strategy that can react and can try to take advantage of it because they will occur. We're operating in a field that, at least from the outside, many people would describe as highly volatile, highly complex, and one in which at least to the outside observer, would lead to a lot of losses. Bob says so many interesting things that I sit here wanting to jump in and add, which, of course, the great news is I get to do. Number one, because we make mistakes, because we're all human and we all make mistakes, it's great to operate in a strategy which is inherently anti-error. Number one, fixed income in general is anti-error because you have the promise of repayment. In the distressed debt area, The promise of payment may be out the window, but at least you are higher in the capital structure. Sometimes you have assets, if not collateralizing the debt, then at least arrayed behind it. You have this aspect that I mentioned before, and as Bob just mentioned, nobody looks at distressed debt from the outside and says, oh, everything's hunky-dory. The greatest thing in investing in general is to find an asset or an asset class that looks scary from the outside, So people shun it, but on investigation is not as scary as they think. You lose money when you overestimate the merits. You give up opportunities when you overestimate the problems. Now, that doesn't mean that just operating in distress debt, you take a seat at the poker table and they push a bunch of money to you. They still don't give you gifts, but it is an arena where the strategy inherently, intrinsically, helps you avoid mistakes. The first thing I did as a money manager was uh, to manage convertible bonds. And I described them as equities with a safety belt because assuming that the credit is money good and we had very, very, very few defaults in the convertible area, if any, assuming the credit is good, the worst that happens is you get repaid at par and it's all upside from there. So being conservative by nature operating in risk strategies, we enjoy the feature of this built-in bias toward risk control. And Bob, I'm curious how some of the lessons learned in distressed investing about mistakes can be applied in non-distressed situations. Yeah. So again, I really like the quote that Howard used in the middle of the memo from Mark Twain about the fact that, and I'll quote it here, It ain't what you don't know what gets you in trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. And that, to me, speaks to uncertainty. I think it behooves all investors to ask a question before they go ahead with an investment. And that question is, where could we be wrong? And we try to ask that at almost every investment discussion that we have. And again, we don't always get it right. Even when we're trying to hypothesize what it is that could trip us up in a particular investment, we don't always come up with the risk factor 
that ultimately is our undoing or frankly come up with it at all. Um, but thinking about it in advance gives you a pause and a humility as you approach these investments to know that there are going to be mistakes and you should approach the situation with that. As Howard says, when you're imminently confident, when you're certain, it leads you to do things that ultimately can be quite pernicious to the operation of the fund. You use leverage, too much leverage, which again, has to be dealt with if things go wrong. You over-concentrate, which means that an investment, if it does go sideways, has an inordinate impact on the performance of the overall pool of capital that you're operating. And if you, again, depart from a perspective of uncertainty, I think it leads you to a place where you're not going to do that. And I think this is not just true of distress. I think this is true of all investing. You should understand that the world is a very complicated place and it's very difficult for one person to correctly forecast it and make sure that you construct your portfolio, construct the pool of investments that you have accordingly. So Howard, Bob just went through a number of different types of mistakes that investors can make. And I know in the memo, you list many different types of mistakes. What do you think are some of the most important mistakes that investors make? Well, the number of potential mistakes is infinite, ranging from overestimating the merits to underestimating the problems to using too optimistic a scenario to having too high a return expectation or demand. Most people can add and subtract. They rarely make arithmetic errors. They rarely fail to grasp the meaning of financial statements. And people have gotten pretty good at manipulating readily available quantitative information. Most of the errors are emotional, frankly. Being too optimistic or too pessimistic about the future or having typical herd-like mentality. By definition, the herd is usually wrong and especially at the extremes. We talk about bubbles and crashes, highs and lows. Well, a bubble is an irrational, unsustainable high, which comes from excessive optimism and excessive extrapolation of positive trends. And a bubble is an irrational, unsustainable low, which comes from excessive pessimism and excessive extrapolation of a negative trend. If people didn't have emotions, there wouldn't be uh, bubbles and crashes. There wouldn't be uh, highs and lows to that extent. Richard Feynman, the great physicist, once said that physics would be much harder if electrons had feelings. People have feelings and they let those feelings go sometimes. And the feelings take over from re their reason. They buy too high and sell too low. These are common mistakes and they're extremely important to guard against. I'd say when we approach a situation, Howard has pointed out one very major circumstance that leads to great opportunities, which is a, a cyclical opportunity where there's a major dislocation in the market. People become too pessimistic. The market freezes up. And that was true back in March of 2020. Then there's the secular opportunities where it's not the economy as a whole, but a sector of the economy is affected in a way that leads to a higher level of distress than normal or a higher level of distress relative to the other parts that are other industries. Those are trickier to assess because there's usually one or two major factors that are leading to the turmoil. And those factors are difficult to project, especially when you consider you may be operating in relatively benign economic times. But that's the category of things that we often have to work through. And then finally, there's idiosyncratic distress where there's a specific company that has a very, very unique issue to its business model. And those can be the most difficult situations to assess where it's not an industry factor, it's not the economy as a whole, it's something that that company is uniquely facing. I think, again, as Howard has alluded to in the 38 years he's been operating the strategy along with Bruce, we've gotten a lot of institutional knowledge that helps us assess case studies in each of those three different categories. We know very well what to do when there are major dislocations. Bob said something very important, pattern recognition. When you have the years of experience, for example, that Bruce Karsh has, having led this strategy since 1988, after a while, something happens and you're able to say, oh, that's one of those. I've seen that before. 
and you know how to react and you know how it's probably going to unfold. Now, when you have idiosyncratic events, a sample of one from a larger universe, it doesn't have to follow the pattern, but at least you have a starting point and you don't have to begin your thinking from scratch. One other thing I want to mention is that five or 10 minutes ago, Bob alluded to the fact that the cruise industry, clearly the problems they had with the pandemic are not permanent. But if you go back to February, March of 2020, it looked like the cruise industry was the worst possible industry. We looked at the cruise liners that were stranded offshore with COVID cases and ports wouldn't accept them. And it had the vision of a floating Petri dish, in which case people were merely passing the disease around. And it was one of the scariest things. But if you said, boy, that's terrible, that's probably going to kill the cruise industry, you missed a lot. It was possible to make some good cruise industry investments, but not if you let your pessimism go to excess. And Bob, as I recall, the rescue financing for cruise lines was one of the first such loans where we saw a turnaround from total disinterest to strong appetite and eventually a bidding war. You're absolutely correct, Howard. It was kind of a watershed moment in the pandemic where things went from, I think, what you would describe as complete hopelessness to people, this is finding a bottom and it's probably going up from here. So... You know, I often say that in the real world, things fluctuate between pretty good and not so hot. But in the investment world, they go from flawless to hopeless. This was a case where it went from hopeless to not so hopeless to maybe okay, And the result was very strong for the securities. I guess just expanding on that a little bit, most of the people that had invested, you look at the things that were priced to flawless performance before the pandemic, and you look at them at the depths, and they had no relationship to each other. It was an unknown unknown, as I think some people would categorize it. I think our business model, our way of thinking is unknown unknowns will happen, and we'll be there with capital and ready to address them when they do. We've talked a little bit here about the pandemic, which has definitely been a sample size of one. And one of the things that we've seen quite a bit during this period have been forecasting errors. And this is something that, Howard, you know, you talk about quite a bit and you talk about in this memo of problems with forecasting. So I was hoping you could speak about that and also maybe specifically what you've seen with problems related to forecasting during the pandemic. Our listeners, our readers have heard about this ad nauseum from me. It's really one of the foundations of Oak Tree. We have an investment philosophy with six tenets. We wrote it out when we were starting in April of 95. We've never, literally, have never changed the word, and we still think it's absolutely helpful and relevant. Tenant number five says that our investment decisions are not governed by macro forecasts. It's very hard to forecast the future better than anybody else. It's not hard to be right about the future. Most of the time, the future looks like the past. And if you extrapolate the past into the future, most of the time you're right. But the problem is it doesn't help you make any money because everybody else is right too. And a correct forecast that everybody holds, it will not be profitable. The profits come from seeing things differently from others. And the most valuable forecasts are the ones that see the future as very different from the past and turn out to be correct. So we have the run-of-the-mill events, usually extrapolation works. And then we have the one-off events, which are very difficult to foresee, a black swan, if you will. I use the term improbable disaster. There are these things in the investment world, which if they happen, will have disastrous consequences, but we don't think they're very likely. What do we do about them? We can't spend a lot of money insuring against pandemics all the time because it would be disastrous for our results. Most of the time, we'd be paying insurance premiums that were unwarranted. And yet, this is an example of what happens when the improbable disaster shows up. I was thinking that if you did a Google search of the popular literature, I say popular, not medical literature, but the business press and the general press in the decade prior to 2020, if you searched for pandemic, you'd probably have very few references, if any. And yet it absolutely changed our lives over the last two years. So other people didn't think there could be a pandemic. Shame on them. We didn't either. Shame on us. But we couldn't. And we couldn't think of the likelihood of a pandemic or a world war or an earthquake, or some other cataclysm. 
yet we know they're going to happen. We try to make our money by knowing the knowable, by micro forecasting, knowing more than the competition about companies, industries, and securities. And we think we can, and I think that the record demonstrates that. We don't know more than anybody else about the future of the economy, interest rates, commodity prices, currency exchange rates, market direction. So we don't waste our time betting on those things because any conclusions we did have could easily be misleading and a source of error. One of the things we hold very strongly around Oak Tree is it's one thing to have an opinion. We all have opinions about the future, but it's something very different to assume you're right and bet on your opinion. And we try not to do that. I think that's a great place to then go into any final thoughts on mistakes in general. I want to pick up on another thing from the memo, which is I want to emphasize that we, and by that I mean I, make a lot of mistakes. We do it every day. But I think we do a good job of learning from our mistakes. And I think we also structure our operation in a way that we can take advantage of these situations when they occur. You are going to make mistakes. It's how you react to them and what you take from them and how you change your mode of operation. I think it was Shaq who said, experience is not what happens to you, it's what you do with what happens to you. In the memo, I tell the story about the poker game. There's an adage that if you sit down at a poker game, there's always one sucker, what they call a fish, one weak player. And if you've played for 45 minutes and you haven't figured out who the weak player is, then it's you. And as I mentioned, going into so-called inefficient markets, going into the market for distressed debt is not a license to make money. It's not like you take a seat at the table and they push a bunch of money toward you. It's an opportunity, but you still have to be within that arena. You have to be a person who mostly does things right and who doesn't make too many mistakes and who understands the importance of taking advantage of the mistakes of others. And that's true of all investing. And of course, it's a great advantage in general to be buying in a market that is characterized by excessive negativism. And just as Bob described, excessive optimism in underwriting causes the unwise extension of credit. Excessive pessimism, once the errors have come to light, causes prices to be too low. That combination has made a lot of money over the decades. I think it's the formula that has the best chance of succeeding. And now here's It's All a Big Mistake by Howard Marks. Mistakes are a frequent topic of discussion in our world. It's not unusual to see investors criticized for errors that resulted in poor performance. But rarely do we hear about mistakes as an indispensable component of the investment process. I'm writing now to point out that mistakes are all that superior investing is about. In short, in order for one side of a transaction to turn out to be a major success, the other side has to have been a big mistake. There's an old saying in poker that there's a fish, a sucker, or an unskilled player who's likely to lose in every game. And if you've played for an hour without having figured out who the fish is, then it's you. Likewise, in every investment transaction you're part of, it's likely that someone's making a mistake. The key to success is to not have it be you. Usually, a buyer buys an asset because he thinks it's worth more than the price he's paying. But the seller sells the asset because he thinks the price he's getting exceeds its value. It's pretty safe to say one of them has to be wrong. Strictly speaking, that doesn't have to be true, Thanks to differences in things like tax status, time frame, and investors' circumstances. But in general, win win transactions are much less common than win lose transactions. When the dust has settled after most trades, the buyer and seller are unlikely to be equally happy. I consider it highly desirable to focus on the topic of investing mistakes. First, it serves as a reminder that the potential for error is ever present and thus of the importance of mistake minimization as a key goal. Second, if one side of every transaction is wrong, we have to ponder why we should think it's not us. Third, then, it causes us to consider how to minimize the probability of being the one making the mistake. 
Investment Theory on Mistakes According to the efficient market hypothesis, the efforts of motivated, intelligent, objective, and rational investors combine to cause assets to be priced at their intrinsic value. Thus, there are no mistakes. No undervalued bargains for superior investors to recognize and buy, and no overvaluations for inferior investors to fall for. Since all assets are priced fairly, once bought at fair prices, they should be expected to produce fair, risk-adjusted returns, nothing more and nothing less. That's the source of the hypothesis's best-known dictum, you can't beat the market. I've often discussed this definition of market efficiency and its error. The truth is that while all investors are motivated to make money, otherwise they wouldn't be investing, A, far from all of them are intelligent, and B, it seems almost none are consistently objective and rational. Rather, investors swing wildly from optimistic to pessimistic and from overconfident to terrified. And as a result, asset prices can lose all connection with intrinsic value. In addition, investors often fail to unearth all of the relevant information, analyze it systematically, and step forward to adopt unpopular positions. These are some of the elements that give rise to what are called inefficiencies, academics' highfalutin word for mistakes. I absolutely believe that markets can be efficient in the sense of quick to incorporate information, but certainly they aren't sure to incorporate it correctly. Underpricings and overpricings arise all the time. However, the shortcomings described in the previous paragraph render those mispricings hard to profit from. While market prices are often far from right, it's nearly impossible for most investors to detect instances when the consensus has done a faulty job of pricing assets and to act on those errors. Thus, theory is quite right when it says the market can't be beat, certainly by the vast majority of investors. People should engage in active investing only if they're convinced that A. Pricing mistakes occur in the market they're considering and B. They, or the managers they hire, are capable of identifying those mistakes and taking advantage of them. Unless both of those things are true, any time, effort, transaction costs, and management fees expended on active management will be wasted. Active management has to be seen as the search for mistakes. Behavioral Sources of Investment Error As just described, Investment theory asserts that assets sell at fair prices, and thus there's no such thing as superior risk-adjusted performance. But real-world data tells us that superior performance does exist, albeit far from universally. Some people find it possible to buy things for less than they're worth, at least on occasion, but doing so requires the cooperation of people who are willing to sell things for less than they're worth. What makes them do that? Why do mistakes occur? The new field of behavioral finance is all about looking into errors stemming from emotion, psychology, and cognitive limitations. If market prices were set by a pricing czar who was, one, tireless, two, aware of all the facts, three, proficient at analysis, and four, thoroughly rational and unemotional, assets could always be priced right based on the available information never too low or too high. In the absence of that czar, if a market were populated by investors fitting that description, it too could price assets perfectly. That's what the efficient marketers theorize, but it's just not the case. Very few investors satisfy all four of the requirements just listed, and when they fail, particularly at number four, being rational and unemotional, it seems they all err in the same direction at the same time. That's the reason for the herd behavior that's behind bubbles and crashes, the biggest of all investment mistakes. According to the efficient market hypothesis, people study assets, assess their value, and thereby decide whether to buy or sell. Given its current value and the outlook for change in that value, each asset's current price implies a prospective return and risk level. 
Market participants engage in a continuous, instantaneous auction through which market prices are updated. The goal is to set prices such that the relationship between each asset's potential return and risk, that is, its prospective risk-adjusted return, is fair relative to all other assets. Inefficiencies, mispricings, are instances when one asset offers a higher risk-adjusted return than another. For example, A and B might seem equally risky, but A might appear to offer a higher return than B. In that case, A is too cheap, and people will sell B, lowering its price, raising its potential return, and reducing its risk. And buy A, raising its price, lowering its potential return, and increasing its risk until the risk-adjusted returns of the two are in line. That condition is called equilibrium. It's one of the jobs of a functioning market to eliminate opportunities for extraordinary profitability. Thus, market participants want to sell overpriced assets and buy underpriced assets. They just don't do so consistently. Most investment error can be distilled to the failure to buy the things that are cheap, or to buy enough of them, and to sell the things that are dear. Why do people fail in that way? Here are just a few reasons. Bias or closed-mindedness. In theory, investors will shift their capital to anything that's cheap, correcting pricing mistakes. But in 1978, most investors wouldn't buy B-rated bonds at any price, because doing so was considered speculative and imprudent. In 1999, most investors refused to buy value stocks, also at any price, because they were deemed to lack the world-changing potential of technology stocks. Prejudices like these prevent valuation disparities from being closed. Capital rigidity. In theory, investors will move capital out of high-priced assets and into cheap ones. But sometimes investors are condemned to buy in a market even though there are no bargains or to sell even at giveaway prices. In 2000, in venture capital, there was too much money chasing too few deals. In 2008, CLOs receiving margin calls had no choice but to sell loans at bankruptcy prices. Rigidities like these create mispricings. Psychological excesses. In theory, investors will sell assets when they get too rich in a bubble or buy assets when they get cheap enough in a crash. But in practice, investors aren't all that cold-blooded. They can fail to sell, for example, because of an unwarranted excess of optimism over skepticism or an excess of greed over fear. Psychological forces like greed, fear, envy, and hubris permit mispricings to go uncorrected or become more so. Herd behavior. In theory, market participants are willing to buy or sell an asset if its price gets out of line. But sometimes there are more buyers for something than sellers, or vice versa, regardless of price. This occurs because of most investors' inability to diverge from the pack, especially when the behavior of the pack is being rewarded in the short run. The foregoing goes a long way to support Yogi Berra's observation that, in theory, there is no difference between theory and practice. In practice, there is. Theory has no answer for the impact of these forces. Theory assumes investors are clinical, unemotional, and objective, and always willing to substitute a cheap asset for a dear one. In practice, there are numerous reasons why one asset can be priced wrong in the absolute or relative to others, and stay that way for months or years. Those are mistakes, and superior investment records belong to investors who take advantage of them consistently. A case in point. Bruce Karsh and his distressed debt team have averaged returns of roughly 23% per year before fees and 18% after fees for more than 23 years, without any use of borrowed capital. All 18 of their funds have been profitable, and money-losing years have been quite scarce. I consider this record nothing short of aberrant, 
you're simply not supposed to be able to make that kind of return for that long, and especially without the use of leverage. Investing skill aside, what made it possible? Is it because it's called distressed debt? That can't be it. There's nothing in a name. Is it because distressed debt is an undiscovered market niche? That can't be it either. Distressed debt may have been little known and underappreciated when we raised our first fund in 1988, but there can't be many institutional investors who haven't heard of distressed debt by now. Certainly the secret's out. Can it be because people are unwilling to venture into the sordid world of default and bankruptcy? That might have been the case in the 1980s, but today, most investors will do anything to make a buck. So then, why? I think it's largely a matter of mistakes. At our London client conference in April, I listened as Bob O'Leary, a co-portfolio manager of our distressed debt funds, described his group's work as follows. Our business is often an examination of flawed underwriting assumptions. In other words, it's their raison d'etre to profit from the mistakes of others. Hearing Bob put it that way gave me the immediate inspiration for this memo. The active investor only achieves above-average performance to the extent that he can identify and act on mistakes others make. The opportunities invested in by our distressed debt funds are a glaring example. What's the process through which the mistakes arise? The analysis performed by a company's management or the due diligence performed by a prospective acquirer understates the stresses to which a business will be subjected and or overstates its ability to withstand them. Using Bob's terminology, they employ overly optimistic underwriting assumptions, particularly in good times. As a result, debt is piled on that turns out to be more than the company can service when things turn down. Just as companies and acquirers are often too optimistic in good times, debt holders tend to become too pessimistic in bad times. As a result, they become willing to sell the debt to financially distressed companies at prices that overstate the negatives and thus are too low, giving us the potential for superior returns with less than commensurate risk. All three of these are foundational elements for success in distressed debt investing. The first two contribute to the creation of high-potential return situations. If no one underestimated risk, and thus overloaded capital structures with debt, there wouldn't be many defaults and bankruptcies. We call these lending decisions the unwise extension of credit, or, alternatively, stacking wood for the bonfire. And if no one panicked in response to negative developments and scary prospects, and thus sold out too cheaply, there would be no reason to expect higher risk-adjusted returns from distressed debt than from anything else. Many of the biggest mistakes made in the business and investment worlds have to do with cycles. People extrapolate uptrends and downtrends into eternity, whereas the truth is that trends usually correct. Rather than go well or poorly forever, most things regress to the mean. The longer a trend has gone on, making it appear more permanent, the more likely it usually is that the time for it to reverse is near. And the longer an uptrend goes on, the more optimistic, risk-tolerant, and aggressive most people become, just as they should be turning more cautious. So, for example, when the economy is thriving and profits are rising, people conclude that company operations should be expanded, acquisitions should be undertaken, and more debt can be borne. That same bullishness causes providers of debt to bestow larger amounts of money on weaker borrowers at lower interest rates and with looser covenants. Thus, cycles are big sources of error, and pro-cyclical behavior is one of the biggest destroyers of capital. The point here is that one of distressed debts investing's great advantages is that it embodies an anti-error business model. Distressed debt investors almost never invest in companies where everything's going well and investors are enthralled. There's no such thing as a financially distressed company that everyone loves. By definition, rarely invest before the emergence of significant problems, 
hopefully meaning fewer negative surprises are left in the bag, are in business to buy debt at significant discounts, often from forced or highly motivated sellers. Distressed debt at par is an oxymoron, and at least in theory, distressed debt investors are bargain hunters whose ardor rises as prices fall, not the reverse, like so many other investors. It's not that distressed debt investors can't make mistakes, just that their likelihood of doing so is reduced by the very nature of their investment activity. Anything that decreases an investor's chance of erring, even an involuntary safety mechanism, works to his advantage. Distressed debt is, by definition, an area where borrowers and lenders have made grave mistakes, at least some of those mistakes have come to light, and the stress, unpleasantness, and uncertainty that attend a downturn often make debt holders sell out at the wrong time and price. In other words, it's an area where negativism and error are crystallized, maximized, and magnified, and nothing is more likely to make an asset too cheap than excessively negative psychology. When we're out raising a new fund, investors often ask whether people have wised up such that they'll no longer make these mistakes. Thus far, the answer has been no, and in fact, there's no reason to believe there's been any progress at all up the learning curve. The proof? The distressed debt opportunities that built up in 2005 to 07 and flowered in the crisis of 2008 were some of the best we've ever encountered, and certainly the most plentiful. One classic mistake. I want to take this occasion to touch on a favorite thought of mine. Investing consists of just one thing, choosing which assets to hold in order to profit in the future. Thus, there's no getting away from the need to make decisions concerning the future. In deciding which future to prepare for, you need two things. A, an opinion about what's likely to happen, and B, a view on the probability that your opinion is right. Everyone knows about the former, but I think relatively few think about the latter. In short, most people believe in their opinions. Of course they do, you might say. If they didn't have faith in their opinions, they wouldn't hold them. And that's the point. Everyone's entitled to his or her opinion. But one of our favorite sayings around oak trees states that it's one thing to have an opinion and something very different to act as if it's right. Clearly, our opinions are our opinions because we believe them. We rarely hear anyone say, here's what I think and I'm probably wrong. But just as clearly we believe, or should believe, more in some of our opinions than others. The probability of being right about the weather tomorrow in California, a B-rated bond issuer paying its debts, and Greece being part of the European Union in three years is different in each case. Few people would take issue with that. If that's true, the reliance we place on each prediction and the action we take in that reliance should vary. Yet, as I see it, most people who believe in forecasting come up with their opinions and then act on them with equal amounts of confidence. This is one of the greatest sources of investment error. It's perfectly okay to say you don't know something. It's also okay to say you have a view on what might happen, but you're not so sure you're right. In that case, you're likely to moderate your actions and emerge intact, even if you turn out to be wrong. As Mark Twain put it, it ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. Or as Treasury Secretary Robert Rubin told the 1999 graduating class of the University of Pennsylvania, understanding the difference between certainty and likelihood can make all the difference. Forecasting error is much less likely to prove fatal in the absence of excess conviction. I've mentioned before the frequency with which I feel I come across a particularly apt quote just when I need it for a memo in the making. Thus, I'll close this section with one on the present subject from Yasser Anwar's Exclusivo Listserv of May 29th. While everyone well knows himself to be fallible, few admit the supposition that any opinion, 
of which they feel very certain, may be one of the examples of the error to which they acknowledge themselves to be liable. John Stuart Mill, On Liberty, 1859. In other words, nearly everyone accepts that his or her opinion might be wrong. Just not this time. A big mistake in the news. A vast amount of ink and airtime is being devoted to the subject of J.P. Morgan's loss of multiple billions of dollars in its effort to hedge credit risk. People, and especially politicians, have seized on the loss to prove that Jamie Dimon isn't perfect and bank regulation is inadequate. Clearly, J.P. Morgan made a mistake, or more than one. Jamie Dimon has described the hedge as poorly designed, sloppy, and a terrible, egregious mistake. How could that be the case? And how could the result be such an enormous loss in a field as inherently defensive as hedging? The answer is simple. As Charlie Munger once said to me about investing, it's not supposed to be easy. Anyone who finds it easy is stupid. The truth is, it's hard to get it all right all the time. And that's just as true of hedging as it is of investing. Hedging sounds easy. You own something, so you sell something to lessen the impact if your investment performs badly. But there are lots of ways to be wrong. Hedging with the wrong thing. Let's say you own some A but don't want to suffer the full impact if its price declines. Why not just sell short an equal amount of A to hedge? The answer is that owning A and simultaneously shorting A is the same as not owning anything. The long and short positions exactly offset each other, meaning you can't make or lose any money. That's not hedging. That's negating. You want to dampen fluctuations, not eliminate them. So you hedge by selling short something you think will move in sympathy with A, but not exactly. The hope is that by doing it very well, you can eliminate more of the risk of loss than you do of the potential for gain. That's the meaning of a positive arbitrage. Buying Ford stock and simultaneously shorting Ford accomplishes nothing. So perhaps you buy Ford and short General Motors, which you think will perform less well, going up less than Ford or down more. But by transacting in two different assets, you, by definition, introduce the possibility of an unfavorable divergence. This is called basis risk. In short, it's the risk that the behavior of the two assets relative to each other will differ from what you expected. For example, Ford goes down, giving you a loss. But rather than go down in sympathy, which would give you an offsetting gain on the short position, a favorable development at GM makes it go up, compounding your loss as the hedge goes against you. Hedging in the wrong amount you hold 1,000 Ford shares and you think that, given their likely relative performance, you should short 500 GM shares to hedge your risk. But it turns out that while they move in opposite directions, their relative movements aren't what you expected. Thus, you either hedged too much, and thus you lose more on the hedge than you make on the underlying position, or you hedged too little. So the protection you sought doesn't materialize. There's no sure way to choose the right hedge ratio. Time risk. The two sides of the position may work as you expect, but not when you expect. Thus, the hedge may fail to work in the short run, meaning the loss on one side of the hedge may occur before the gain on the other, in which case you'll look flat out wrong for a while. And if you are required, by regulation, margin call, capital withdrawals, etc., to close out the position at that point, the result could be quite negative. Insufficient liquidity. If conditions or goals change, you might want to adjust or remove your hedge. But market developments in terms of liquidity might make it impossible to alter one or both sides of the position. In other words, hedging consists of an attempt to seed some potential gain in exchange for a greater reduction in potential loss. It's a very reasonable course of action, but it doesn't necessarily have to work. In attempting to set up effective hedges, 
there's little choice but to extrapolate past relationships between things. If they could be counted on to persist unchanged, there'd be little risk of being wrong about which asset to hedge with, how much to hedge, or whether the two sides of the hedge will move simultaneously. But just like everyone else in the investment world, would-be hedgers must understand that relationships that held in the past can't be counted on to hold in the future. And let's remember, as the New York Times wrote on May 26th, yes, Morgan lost big, but as Mitt Romney has pointed out, someone else won. That's the bottom line on all investing. There's generally a right side and a wrong side to every investment. Which will you be on? Risk control isn't an action so much as it is a mindset. It stems largely from putting at least as much emphasis on avoiding mistakes as on doing great things. Risk control and consistent success in investing requires an understanding of the fact that high returns don't just come along for the picking. Others must create them for us by making mistakes. And looked at that way, we'll do a better job if we force ourselves to understand the mistake we think is being made and why. Risk control requires that we avoid the analytical and psychological errors to which others succumb. In particular, risk control requires that we temper our belief in our opinions with acceptance of our fallibility. In the end, superior investing is all about mistakes and about being the person who profits from them, not the one who commits them. June 20th, 2012. Thank you for listening to The Memo by Howard Marks. To hear more episodes, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast expresses the views of the author as of the date indicated and such views are subject to change without notice. Oak Tree has no duty or obligation to update the information contained herein. Further, Oak Tree makes no representation and it should not be assumed that past investment performance is an indication of future results. Moreover, wherever there is a potential for profit, there is also the possibility of loss. This podcast is being made available for educational purposes only and should not be used for any other purpose. The information contained herein does not constitute and should not be construed as an offering of advisory services or an offer to sell or solicitation to buy any securities or related financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Certain information contained herein concerning economic trends and performances based on or derived from information provided by independent third-party sources. Oak Tree Capital Management, LP, Oak Tree, believes that the sources from which such information has been obtained are reliable. However, it cannot guarantee the accuracy of such information and has not independently verified the accuracy or completeness of such information or the assumptions on which such information is based. This podcast, including the information contained herein, may not be copied, reproduced, republished, or posted in whole or in part in any form without the prior written consent of Oak Tree. Audiation.